Welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place for students looking for the far side of complexity. Today I have a wonderful interview, and I just wanted to um, remind you guys that you can always subscribe, and if you enjoy this interview, feel free to share it with at least one friend. All right, without further ado, Debbie Pridemore. Today I have a colleague of mine, Debbie Pridemore. This is always the part of the interview where I have just the greatest doubt. I'm like, crap, did I say her name right? <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And you're a, you're a counselor in the area. You do mm -hmm. um, couples, EMDR, so a little bit yes. of everything. Speaks yes, Spanish. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I just really wanted to get you um, on a chat and kind of dig mm -hmm. into some of that stuff. So before we get into sure. any of that, can you give us a little bit of a summary? Like, how did you get into the field of counseling? Yeah. So, well, I think a big part of it was just, you know, listening to people and wanting to understand their hearts and what was going on behind the pain um, was always just a big part of who I am. And so, you know, I was always that person that people came to to talk to when they were struggling with someone. And one day I was like, oh, maybe this is something that God has gifted me in and maybe I should develop this and earn a living at the same time. And that <laughs> just it's just necessary. <laughs> it's just necessary. Yes. And so I actually was in um, Venezuela at the time and um, was trying to figure out what to do after um, I came back to the States and, and just thought, okay, counseling may be a good option, you know, considering, um, what I'm gifted in and just my heart for ministry as well. And, you know, regardless of what I end up doing, that will help me know how to work with people better, whether I'm like a professional counselor or in some other field. And, um, and so I ended up actually going to seminary after that. And the seminary did not have a counseling program. Um, and so um, after seminary, then I decided to go down to San Diego to study counseling. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was great. And it's been a journey ever since. Wow. <laughs> Pretty wild. What did yeah. you do? In, was it like a seminary undergrad degree or something else? It was a uh, master's in theological studies. Wow. Yeah. How old were you when you got that degree? Uh, let's see. I think I was, I started the program when I was 27. So I think I graduated when I was 29 or 30, yeah. so 20, probably 29. Yeah. And you got that instead of getting a counseling degree because? Uh, because I've also always felt um, called to ministry and missions and um, wanted to make sure I had, you know, just the background that I needed and the preparation I needed for that as well. And, and actually, while I was at seminary, um, I was in this class that was about like your vocation and what is your calling and your gifting and everything. And God really emphasized again that, okay, my gifting is in counseling and this is what you need to do in order to work with the people that I want you to work with in a ministry setting. You need to be prepared to really help people sort through what's going on in their hearts. And, um, and how to help people heal. Yeah. And so, so that got a kind of, again, during seminary confirmed for me that that's, 
that was my next step. And your and your seminary training sounds like it was more like on the mission side and less on the chaplaincy side or the theology it was, side. So it was just a general theology degree. So not necessarily missions. Um, it was more just biblical studies and theology and just a little, a bit more general. Yeah. yeah. Uh, your, your story already parallels a little bit. Um, yeah. One of my, one of our other friends, James Hawkins, uh-huh. he, he was also called into counseling, but yeah. came to it through way of um, seminary. Right. Yeah. 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 It's kind of interesting. And, you know, I love that I have both because I think it helps me have a broader vision for both of the things that I love. Like I love understanding more about God and man, that's, I would say that's my main passion is relationship with God and helping people find a deeper relationship with God. That would probably be like the organizing passion of my life. And yet kind of what he's shown me is that in order to help people have a deeper relationship with him, you also need to be able to help them go deep into their hearts and figure out what's going on there so that then they can bring that to him and find healing there. And so it's in, so that kind of organizes how I do counseling too. Like I use all the theories that I use to help people kind of go deep wherever they're at and figure out what's going on underneath and then bring that to him um, and let him bring healing into those places. Yeah. Wow. So how does that connect with you going into counseling? Because I mean, you're, Mm -hmm. you're highly educated and you're like, okay, I'll go get another master's degree. (laughs) Yeah. So um I mean it was hard I think after seminary I was like oh man like three more years because the program I went to is a three-year program it's like three more years of of school this is exhausting how many years have I been in school now (laughs) my whole life yeah (laughs) yeah um but you know I ended up and I ended up having to go to a community college and a state school for a little bit just to get prerequisites uh, to go to the master's program, I was like, okay. So I, ended up, so I took a year off in between seminary and grad school in order to get those prerequisites. And, um, but it, you know, it was so worth it. And I chose my program in San Diego because it had a really strong cross-cultural emphasis as well. So cross-cultural counseling, um, working with diverse communities, um, and so I really loved it because it helped me just get a broader view of the world and um, just kind of trying to learn in depth how do, how, what does counseling look like with people from other cultures who may not have a counseling frame who are like, what, it, what is counseling? <laughs> like, why do you need to talk to somebody about these things? And, um, and just a real... I think just a real grace perspective on why people do what they do and how when we come from different backgrounds and different cultures, that really impacts how we view problems, how we view 
the heart relationships and to, to really honor those, those views and those experiences without coming just from a, a teaching or I know what's best view of, of counseling. And so I'm very grateful for it. So yes, to answer your question. So then after seminary, just kind of, um, just, just a clarity of like, in order to do ministry well, I really need to know how to work with people's hearts. And so um, decided for sure to go into, to, to study counseling again. Yeah. That yeah. seems to be a pretty clear pattern with um, people who are mission minded. Yeah. I spent, spent a little bit of time working with people who are mission minded in grad yeah. school and 90% of them were like, man, either we need counselors or I got to go back and get a counseling degree. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. They, they, they get called in. I mean, they usually, the people that I knew, they get some sort of ministry degree and they feel prepared and they go out, out into the field. And then dad says, I'm having trouble with my wife. Wife right. says my husband is beating me or right. they're just seeing these issues and they, they feel like they need to intervene, but they don't know how. Right. Yeah, or kids absolutely. are on drugs and they're like, I don't know, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I grew up in a missionary family. Um, my parents were missionaries in Brazil. And so I saw a lot um, the need of just how much my, my parents did counseling as a part of how they ministered to people. And so I think I, you know, I saw the same thing that you're saying just the value of being able to, to work well with people in that way. And, and, you know, at the time in seminary as well, I was feeling like God was leading me to work with um, women who had been abused um, in a Muslim context or um, Middle Eastern context. And so as soon as that, I felt that, that direction, I was like, okay, for sure. I better be I need good at some I'm more doing. training. <laughs> I better be good at what I'm yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, what year did you did you graduate? In let's see, 2011. Okay. From grad school, yeah, from my counseling degree. And then somehow from there you got into your current position. <laughs> yeah. So, I was planning on. I, you know, after I got licensed in California, my plan was to go overseas and do missions using counseling as a platform and, and as a way to support myself. And that did not happen. I just, you know, since like it was time to be close to my parents for a little bit because they had retired and uh, were in Arkansas or were about to be in Arkansas. And just since that I just needed to come and be close to them. So was not my plan. And I was like, Arkansas, why? <laughs> why do I need to go to Arkansas? This is not you know, what the vision of my life has been. It's not and Brazil. It's not, it's not Brazil. the Middle no, East. No, it's in no. Middle of America. What am I going to do in Arkansas? <laughs> 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 yeah, so you know, I spent a few months just getting licensed here, right? Because the license doesn't transfer over from state to state. So I had to get relicensed here, which fortunately was not too difficult of a process. Um, just took a little time, but I was able to do fairly quickly. 
and had interviewed at another position with one of the former directors of the Joshua Center. And that didn't work out, but he said, hey, do you want to work at the Joshua Center? I was like, what's the Joshua Center? <laughs> but sure, I need a job. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it was just a real, I don't know, just a kind of a circumstantial thing. But now looking back, I'm like, oh, okay. Totally God wanted me here because I'm growing so much as a counselor and learning so much. And it was the perfect place for me. Um, but it was just kind of one of those things where I just fell in my lap, you know? So, yeah. Very unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. And so was private practice your first gig out of school? No. So after grad school, I worked at a place called Mia Escuelita and it was a preschool for children who had come from families um, with domestic violence. So they, in order to qualify, there had to have been some kind of domestic violence between adults in the home. And um, I think there were about 60 children, I wanna say, at the school. Um, and when I started, I was the only counselor <laughs> for 60 children and uh it was chaos <laughs> and i had no idea what i was doing and um but i learned so much man you know i took the job because of my desire to work with women who had come from abusive situations and so i thought oh this is a great fit i'll be able to see kind of the dynamics of the whole family and what that looks like and and learn more about it and so it was um huge learning experience for sure I think the first six months I was just completely overwhelmed and shocked probably yes yeah. I mean I remember one experience pretty early on where <laughs> this kid he he wanted something or was he was having some kind of negative behavior throwing something at somebody and so I, I took it away from him and put it up on a shelf so he couldn't reach it. And he was like furious, right? And so he grabs a pencil, runs towards me, and stabs me in the wrist. And I was like, what is going on? He's three. Oh, man. And yeah. And so like things that grad school does not train you for. No. Right? Like grad school doesn't tell you what to do. I mean, it doesn't tell you how to work with preschoolers, much less how to work in a classroom setting yeah. and oh, all that stuff that I just kind of had to learn as I went. And then fortunately, we partnered with an organization that did parent-child therapy. And so we would send a lot of the parents to them and we would do case consultations with them. And so I ended up being able to uh, join in on their supervision with their clinical supervisor and um, was able to learn about attachment and you know what how that influenced behaviors and what kids need when there's an attachment um, a disorder there or, or insecurity there and how to work with the parents and oh man that was a lifesaver because it just made order out of the chaos yeah. um, and that's a big part of what I do now, a circle of security. And that's where I learned uh, that model. It's an attachment-based mm. model. 
Okay. And yeah. And so literally can you, like, can you talk a little bit about that attachment of security? It, yeah. Circle of security. It, so really what it does is it helps you see what are the basic attachment needs that children have and how do we recognize what those needs are um, through the child's behavior? And then how does, um, how do we respond to it? And then it goes into how does, what comes up for us that keeps us from responding to it? So what is our, what they call shark music? Mm-hmm. So when we see a behavior that feels threatening to us for some reason, either because of how we were parented or the needs in our story that didn't get met or just our feelings of helplessness or fear of being out of control, um, that that creates this experience that feels kind of like that shark music, that something bad is going to happen right here. And we then become overwhelmed by our own anxiety and aren't able to respond to what the child needs in the moment. And so, so it, and so then it works with a parent on how to manage that, that experience and how to recognize when they're getting triggered um, and pause and be able to refocus onto what the child needs at the moment instead of uh, the shark music that's coming up for them. Yeah, that might be like one of the um, greatest barriers to I want to say change or growth or mm-hmm. I'm not even sure what the what the word is, but um, there really seems to be this thing where you have your resources uh-huh. and then you have the blocks that get in the way of you getting to your resources. Absolutely. And it's almost like we spend too much time trying to add in more resources and yeah. not enough time trying to deal with the blocks. Or like yes. it's it's almost like you're driving a car. Most therapists are pressing on the gas. Mm-hmm. Well, what you need to do is just release the brake. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so, I don't know. I just see that as a constant sort of pattern where people get stuck. Now, as someone myself, like I, I have definitely needed more resources many times, mm-hmm. and yeah. I don't want to downplay that. Yeah. Because um, I've gotten a lot out of like skills training, like you have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's also, if you're not dealing with the shark music. Right. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter how many skills you have, you can't use them. Yeah. In the moment. Yeah, for sure. And we all have shark music, right? And so it's not even a question of do we have shark music, it's when the shark music comes up, how do we recognize it? Yeah. How do we, you know, have compassion for ourselves in that place? And then, you know, figure out a way to, to be able to recenter and come back. And, and work through whatever's happening or repair when it goes wrong. That's something we talk a lot about in Circle of Security too, is that we're not going to get it right most of the time. And so when we need to come back and repair, um, how do we do that? Right? When our shark music has gotten the best of us and we weren't able to be present and responsive to the child. So, um, yeah, so I think in like it for me in the preschool context, it changed my experience from chaos to order. It didn't make it easier, but it made it way less confusing. So my shark music was still coming up and the children's behaviors were still very difficult. 
but it helped me be able to understand what was happening with the child and then be able to pause and say, okay, what do they need right now? Even though it feels really scary for me yeah. or, you know, how can I help another adult know what the child needs and I can tap out cause this is too overwhelming. Yeah. Right. And, um, and still the child's need gets met. Um, and so is there, yeah. I don't know if you've done any work with the empower to connect people. I don't think uh, so. No. Uh, Karen Pervers out of TCU. I, I love her stuff. So I mentioned it. Yeah. A bit. But oh. it's, it's a, it sounds like a similar sort of approach. Uh-huh. TBRI trust based relational intervention. I've heard of that one. Yeah. yeah. I know that they, they use some of the circle of security materials as well. So I think it's pretty similar. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I think circle of security is a bit more focused on, so it's like a parenting class. So it's not, uh, well, a part of it is a therapy model, but it's also the level that I do is more um, a parenting class, but there are a lot of dynamics in it where you help the parents process their own experience. So it, you know, it feels therapeutic in a lot of ways, but it's in just a more informal context. Okay. So you were doing that fresh out of grad school, which is also a pretty yes. common sort of uh, pattern of people. They get out yes. and yes. they realize that their program didn't prepare them to, to prepare them to do the <laughs> right. job. Exactly. And that's so disorienting. I'm like, what? I thought I was supposed to be ready. Yeah. But yeah, so I was there for four years. Four yeah. years. Holy smokes. Yes. Four years. Yeah, I know it looking back, it doesn't feel that long, but it was, it was four years. Yeah. And I would say the first six, six months to a year were felt very chaotic, very, very stressful. And after that, after about a year, I would say, I felt like, okay, I know what to do here. And that was after I already had the circle of security model. And then it was just, this is hard, but I know what to do. And it was still stressful, but less chaotic. It's funny how much that changes things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, things can be, I don't know. I mean, I think that you you made a very fine distinction uh-huh. between things can be chaotic and hard or they can be hard. And those are yes. different things. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Very different, very yeah. different. Because when things feel chaotic, it's hard to get your footing. It is. And it's really overwhelming and it's almost like a hopeless feeling. Yeah. And yeah. so it's, it just makes it that much harder. Yeah. 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 So you did that for four years, basically Uh master children. Yes. Um, (laughs) Preschoolers, anyway. Preschoolers, yeah. Give "Ah." me an eight-year-old, I'm like, uh, not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Give me a three to five-year-old, I'm like, got it. It's done. (laughs) It's easy. Yes. Eat that for lunch and dinner. Yep. (laughs) Um, and then you somehow you got into couples therapy. Yeah. So when I came to the Joshua Center. Well, so while I was at Mia Escolita, I also was seeing a lot of trauma. And so I had started learning a lot about how to work with trauma as well. And really from a child. She used or was it just more of the circles of safety stuff? So I studied EMDR during that time. Mm, There you go. Yeah. 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 Because I was like, this seems to be like the trauma model that seems to have the most research behind it and pretty straightforward and effective. I could start using it right away. So I got trained in EMDR and didn't use it a whole lot at the preschool, um, but I used it some with the kids. 
You didn't use all those little puppets that they have and just go back and forth? I did a little bit, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I did, I did. And one time, this uh, little girl that I was doing it with, she was like, okay, now it's your turn. And she did it to me. She's like, follow my fingers. (laughs) It was really cute. (laughs) That sounds adorable. A little Yeah, oh, it was adorable. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I made up songs to help them, like, do the process and, like, all kinds of things to help them stay with it. It was was pretty fun. Um, But I didn't use it a whole lot. I used it some and a little bit with the parents, but they weren't really my primary clients, so I couldn't do it a whole lot. Um, So when I moved to Arkansas, that's when I really dug into EMDR more and started using it with a lot of my clients and um, have really loved it. And it's something still, that I still use it. Yes, I still use it. Yes, absolutely. I use it a lot um, with my individuals. And again, kind of integrating it with the client's spirituality. So using EMDR to help get to the trauma and really help clients go deep and process all the little, you know, fine um detailed aspects of the trauma and the emotion and the body and everything and then help them to bring um, their experience of Jesus into that so that Jesus meets them in those places of fear and pain and um, and hopelessness and uh, helping them stay present with him in that place and letting him speak into that and have just found it to be incredibly healing for clients and just changes their experience of, of their trauma. And um, so I use that a lot. And then, but when I, also when I got to the Joshua Center, I didn't even know that, so they're like an EFT center, emotionally yeah. focused, a couples therapy center, and like that's like their main thing. And they're like, yeah. oh, well, I'm not really interested in working with couples. So I thought maybe one day I'll do an EFT training just so that I can relate to what they're talking about. And, um, and so I guess about probably about two years into my time at the Joshua Center, I went to the EFT externship. And, and you were hooked. And I was hooked. <laughs> you yes, were hooked like yes. a junkie. I can tell. Yes. <laughs> you're tired. Yeah. But what was funny is that I was still like, like, God, why do you want me to study this? Like, why should I be studying EFT? Like, I don't feel like couples is my main thing. I don't know that it ever will be. You know, why do I need to learn this? And yet there is this this kind of the sense that, no, that I really need to learn this. And so I've kept uh, studying it, kept learning it. I've only had one couple at a time. I've never seen more than, well, I guess I had two couples at one point. But <laughs> I just I just don't see a lot of couples. And, um, but I've been studying it and trying to get better at it and, and using it. And, and then, um, not long after I finished all my basic training, I went to a trauma, EFT which was, for trauma. Which was how long ago? That was September, I think September of, la- no, gosh, was it two Septembers ago now? Yeah, two Septembers ago. So we went through in about the about the same time. I think so. Did were we in the same externship? <laughs> we may have been. We really may have been. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I went I through it not were, this past summer. Further ahead the of summer me. before. Mm. Yeah. No, it's been fairly recent that I've learned it. 
Yeah. So I, or maybe it was a spa. I don't remember. I, at some point I went to EFT for trauma training and with Leanne Campbell and uh, Catherine Reen. And it's like the pieces came together because I could see all my trauma training um, there integrated with the attachment lens, which is what I had been doing all along, right? I had the circle of security, which is attachment based. And I had EMDR, which is trauma based and body based. And then going to this EFT for trauma, it's like it integrated the two and it made so much more sense. Like I felt before that, I felt like I kind of had to choose, okay, either I'm using the trauma lens or I'm using the attachment lens. And when I was there, it's like, oh no, it's the same thing. And just how do we understand it together? Yeah. And how do you understand it? So that attachment is a, a basically a safety system in the body. So attachment with a significant other, secure attachment with a significant other is a way that our body knows that we're safe because it's a protection. So if you're in a, in a jungle alone, your experience is completely different from if you're in a jungle with another person. Why? Because the other person, because you've doubled your protective system. You have somebody else who can look behind you when you're looking ahead. You can look, you know, somebody can look the other way and see if there are any tigers coming from the right while you're looking to the left and seeing if any other tigers are coming. And so it's a protection system that's built into our bodies. And so when that's in distress, like with a couple, and you don't know if that person has your back, you don't know if you're safe with that person or that person becomes a threat, then we go into survival mode. Literally, our body goes into the fight, flight, freeze response because we don't know if we're safe. We don't have that other person to keep us safe, to help us watch for danger and to protect us when there's danger there, right? And so that's where a lot of the um, attachment wounding comes in and the trauma comes in is when there's a break in that. That's not the only time but I would say that trauma is intensified when we feel like we don't have, we can't count on that safe other person, right? When we're in it alone. And so- um, what, are, what are some of the other times? So I would say like if we're, if we're in a, a car wreck that's life-threatening, right? That's not necessarily a relational trauma, but if we know, so the difference, the attachment piece would come in. And if we know that there's a safe person at home that we can call and say, hey, I was just in a wreck. Um, I'm being taken to the hospital. Or if there's somebody there at the hospital with us when we wake up, that cues our safety system and our bodies to know, okay, I'm safe. I have somebody I can depend on that's going to help me navigate this danger, going to help me get through it. Whereas if you're in that wreck, I don't have anyone to call. I'm all alone in this. I feel completely overwhelmed, right? Completely in shock. No way to process what just happened. No way to find safety. There's no, there's no expectation that I'm going to be okay. It's just this flood of, of fear and crisis and survival. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, as you're saying that, I have like five different thoughts running through my head. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I read a book not too long ago that I think everybody should read. Uh-huh. Homo Deus. Uh-huh. Brief History of the Future. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's a historian. And he basically talks about what humans have had to um, endure. Yeah. And how that has shaped us. And how that is also going to shape our future. It's a wonderful book. I mean, it basically is a history of all of humankind. Yeah. And one of the things he says is like human superpower, which after I read that book, I thought this is this is an actual superpower that we have over other creatures, is our mm-hmm. ability to cooperate. Yeah. It's like that's 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 the main thing, and if you look at it, it cycles out. So you have like you know, um, you have families. You have tribes, and then we make this jump because even, you know, uh, other primates are tribal in a sense. Usually, um, up to about a hundred and I think up to like seventy-five members, like in a troop, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. But we go up to one hundred and fifty, which other primates you typically don't do, and then we jump um, to even larger groups, which we usually manage through like religion. Uh huh. Right, but like that's the core is that the thing that really separates us and has allowed us to do uh, well on this planet. It's not that we're the fastest or the strongest or the, even the smartest necessarily, mm-hmm. but it's our ability to cooperate. And right. so what you're talking yeah. about is like to me the fundamental uh, mechanism of how that works. Yeah, right. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. that it's not that it's both on that one one to one level but it's also on a group level too which makes sense that when somebody is disconnected from the group they also go into crisis right they also go into fight flight or freeze mode into survival mode because they then all their their resources for being safe in the world have disappeared yeah 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 i mean and i actually have a hunch that that's probably something that we need more of you know like uh we, I talked to James a few weeks ago, and he was talking about how he, he did his dissertation on um, therapy groups for couples. Oh, and to me, it's like, we need that as well. We need yeah. sort of cultural institutions, for lack of a better word, that are yeah. enhancing this thing that we're also doing between you know, us and our partners. I don't, right, I, don't, yeah. I don't know. I think, obviously, the, the one-to-one is important, but the the cooperation between the one-to-one and the larger group is also important. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. That we're actually, if we're working with couples in isolation, then we're not help- helping them have access to that larger context of safety and connection. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So, and you know, maybe I'm off, but I think that also leads back to what you're doing. I mean, part of what you're doing mm-hmm. with those classes is Let's do a culture of parenting. Yes. Let's yes. have a really good culture of parenting. Your uh-huh. issue might not be the fact that you need to come to therapy, but we right. do want to have markers and institutions that enhance the culture of parenting that we have. Right. right. Yeah, absolutely. And I do see in those classes that parents connect to each other. And when they are able to see their experience reflected in the experience of another parent, they don't feel so alone. Right. And, um, and, you know, uh, you know, even have parents who say, hey, can we get back together after six months just to process how it's been going? 
And so. And you say my fee is two hundred dollars an hour. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. But but as a group, even like they want to get together as a group, oh, right? Okay. Because they've made those connections. So and like twenty five dollars like, an hour then. Right, right. Per individual. Per individual. <laughs> per individual. <laughs> you got to make a living. Yes, yes, living. absolutely. Yes, got to make a living. <laughs> yeah. 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 For sure. But okay. yeah, no, I absolutely see the value of that too. Yeah. yeah. So how do you see the interconnect the interconnection between your your EMDR work and your EFT work? So EMDR is a bit more focused, I would say, on specific traumatic memories. Um, I have used it for general, like for clients who struggle with general anxiety and panic attacks right uh there's almost always some traumatic experiences from the past that come up even if the client doesn't label them as traumatic right but it's attachment distress or uh, just being neglected as a child there you know those experiences that are just seen as either normal but have actually been very harmful or um there are experiences that are just really disorganized and the body is still in kind of crisis mode over. So it almost sounds like maybe those are experiences that they haven't had another person with them in order to regulate. Yes. yes. So maybe yes. it wasn't traumatic, right? They weren't in a car right. accident. They weren't beaten up by grandma or whatever. Mm -hmm. But for this thing, they couldn't take it to another person and sort of right. co-regulate. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and their, so their attachment needs were not being met and their safety systems were not being calmed by that safe attachment. Um, and so, so I have used EMDR for that as well, I, just as in like, okay, let's think through your life story and what are the things that have left you alone and hurt, right? And let's process those. So we'll use EMDR for that. Um, I find EMDR the most effective when I'm focusing on specific traumatic events and then I use EFT to help organize the broader experience and the present day experience so um, what I've seen is that I can EMDR is very effective for helping people not be in crisis mode over those traumatic events and regulate them so that they can think about what happened to them but not be overwhelmed and not go into flashbacks and all those traumatic responses um, but they still need help knowing what to do with their emotions now because their emotions have been so unregulated their whole lives or so numbed their whole lives that now in the present day they don't know what to do with them and it's really overwhelming and so once we get through or kind of simultaneously actually is what i've been doing lately is working on how you know how do you feel about these emotions that you have how do you feel about these body responses that you have? What is your relationship with your own emotions and your own body responses? And let's, you know, help you get some experiences of regulating those and organizing those with me and doing that, you know, for yourself as well and developing self-compassion. That seems to be a really big one uh, with clients is that they, they really beat up on themselves for having these feelings and having these bodily responses. Yeah, that's a pretty common thing. Yeah. That I've seen as well. Mm 
Yeah. And so that's how EFT has been really helpful for me with individuals is helping me do that. Um, along with just helping clients understand that what their body is doing is adaptive. What their body is doing is actually really good. And that the more they can work with their body instead of against it, um, listen to their body instead of fight it, that the, the more those responses will kind of soothe and calm and be able to work together versus be so overwhelming. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that's how kind of how they've worked together for me. And I think with, as I'm doing EMDR, I always keep that attachment frame in mind. So I'm always thinking about, okay, how did this impact their relationships and where do they feel alone and where did they feel rejected? And so as they're processing, if I'm, if I'm noticing that theme coming up or that experience, I may just kind of insert, um, a thought about that of like, man, that sounds really lonely. That must've been so scary to, to go through alone. Right. And man, that must feel really sad that the person that you were counting on to be there for you couldn't be there for you. And, you know, so just giving that attachment frame to it really helps organize their experience. And then that's what I do when, when I bring Jesus into it, that's that safe attachment. That's their experience with um, a, that ultimate safe attachment figure who can be there with them and provide safety and comfort and organization to them in those traumatic places. So, so it really blends very beautifully um, as long as you're able to be flexible and willing to integrate the two and not just stay in your silos every level. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you have a sense for how many sessions you see your average client for? Oh, it varies a lot. It varies really widely. So someone comes in for a single incident uh, trauma. So like they didn't really have much childhood trauma. They may, they had some hurtful experiences, but not huge um, things that they're still grieving, then we can process those pretty quickly. Um, if it was like, I don't know, somebody broke into the house, uh, or yeah, like an, an assault situation or a traumatic event, but they were responded to pretty well. Um, and there wasn't a lot of past trauma that they still haven't worked through. Then that processing can be done and like, five sessions but if it's something that there's like years and years of chronic trauma and complex relational trauma that's years and um, yeah so it just varies really widely on what the, the scenario is what their experiences have been I think one of the things about the EFT stuff um, and I don't always know how I feel about it mm -hmm. is it, it kind of has a it puts a very big asterisk over what is human nature mm -hmm. right I, I think it makes some pretty um, definitive sort of statements on what it means to be human yeah 
and I, I mean, I'll be honest. Uh-huh. I, I work that way. I've seen it. I've seen it work for people. I've seen it work for people even when I didn't think it was going to work for people. Kind of helps <laughs> right. to buy into it more. Right. Yeah. And there's also a part of me that's like, how do we know that this is really true about human nature? Mm-hmm. Um, have you thought any about that? Because a lot of what you are also doing is working cross culturally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I was an international mm-hmm. studies major. Uh-huh. I took about a year and a half to two years and traveled um, mm-hmm. Europe, Africa, Papua New Guinea. Yeah. Were kind of the the three big continents, islands that I that I hit, and I got. I don't. I don't think I was frustrated. I was disillusioned. I wasn't. I just thought that. Um, the idea of quote unquote culture was just a, it wasn't a very useful sort of concept. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was so, um, it wasn't specific. Yeah. You know, I would go to one place and missionaries would say, you know, in this place, um, all the women uh, have to wear dresses because the local women, none of them wear pants and then you go there and you see people wearing pants you know what I mean like, what are you about? yeah you know, or just, like they get these images in their minds of what the culture is and there's no flexibility there there's, there's no yeah and some of that is I think them wanting to be super culturally appropriate and not wanting to offend uh-huh. anybody and then yeah. these rules were never as well defined as they were kind of presented and then you would always see overlap and there was always flux between different groups and families and subgroups yeah and, yeah. So for me, the, the idea of culture wasn't very, um, it wasn't very useful yeah. in making any sort of decisions. Ah, uh, okay. Right. Yeah. Um, and then on the other side, I, you know, I run into this attachment stuff and it has some pretty broad claims about, mm-hmm. about romantic relationships, right? Yeah. So they're relationships of equals and then like, parent-child relationships, so okay. relationships of hierarchy, yeah. and I mean, it kind of, um, I think it also flies in the face of some of what you see. So when you, mm. when you think about that, like, how do you kind of marry the two? Or, or do you? Or is it like, ah, maybe they don't fit? Um, you know, so far, I don't think I've really seen many cultural clashes with the attachment stuff. So, you know, with, and I think it's because in every culture, relationships uh, and family are the centerpiece. And so, So attachment is really just helping us understand kind of what are some of the built-in ways that we hold on to our relationships and the things that we do in relationships. Um, Where I can see the clash would be if we expect those strategies to look the same in every culture. So I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example. You know, in, gosh, 
in Brazilian culture, there's much more expectation of social engagement. So, um, whereas here it's a little, little, a little looser expectation. In Brazil, if you're not communicating at a certain level with a significant relationship, kind of generally across the board, there's a higher expectation of that, that you'll be communicating in a certain way. And if you're not, that signals distress in the relationship. Whereas here, the expectations might be a little more fluid with that, um, or just kind of a different experience of that. I know that's pretty general. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to make it concrete. Yeah, it's really it's really general. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but just things we do that are kind of cultural norms of how to re-engage a relationship or maintain a relationship might look different. Yeah. Um, and so, if we come in with the attachment frame and say, "Well," this is that means that your relationship isn't secure because you're doing these things or you're not doing these things i think that's where it could go wrong versus understanding that there's a cultural expression that's different um that's kind of the lens that people view relationships through and how we're supposed to be in relationships that tell us that they're safe and good um, those expressions can be different. And so that's what I want to hold loosely, that I don't ever want to come in with a preconceived notion of what a relationship should look like. That means that it's safe or secure. I want to come in with an open-handed um, curiosity about how are you guys experiencing the relationship right now and what things signal to you that it's not safe, that it's not secure. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I mean, I think that's such a nuanced point because mm -hmm. what you're also implying is that you have an eye for when someone doesn't feel safe, mm. which, yeah. which I personally think you can develop, mm -hmm. but I don't think most people do. Right. 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 And so yeah. an example of that is, um, and I've seen this, I'll have a couple and uh, let's just say it's the wife who uh, the husband will say something and she'll cross her arms and kind of like tighten up and then I'll ask her about that She's, and she'll say oh it's nothing and it's like there's something going on here where <laughs> right. you don't feel safe right yeah right yeah. even though what you're saying is I say I, I, I feel safe right. or I, yes. I had a situation not too long ago with couple were the husband at the end of the session wasn't fidgety uh-huh right and so it's like okay before you would have said you felt safe but now there's a new level of calm that is mm -hmm. being physically displayed in your body right yes um, yeah but i don't know i think i think that's probably also hard to do mm -hmm. hard to teach maybe because your yeah. clients might say yes, because they, they might feel safer than they felt in a mm -hmm. long time. Just sure, right. Yeah, their experience good. of safety is very nuanced too. Yeah. 
And so even though we're sensing there's still some distress there, yeah, they may feel safer than they have in a while. And so <laughs> they may say yes, yeah, true. True, yeah. And I think some of those kind of physical nuances and kind of, I was actually just listening to a, a podcast by um, Stephen Porges and Rebecca Jorgensen the other day. Yeah, polyvagal theory. Yeah, polyvagal theory. He's a super genius. Yeah, he is. And he was talking about that. He was talking about how our vagal nerve is connected to certain facial muscles mm -hmm. and vocal tones. And that, so what we call intuition a lot of the time is an internal response to those very subtle muscle, um, like, you know, actions, yeah, um, tensions or expressions yeah. that we may not consciously be able to say what we're seeing, but there's some intuition there about something just happened for that person. Yeah. And then how I interpret that is a whole other story, but we're picking up on something is happening for that person. And, um, and so, yeah, I think kind of what you're saying is that that can be more highly developed, right? Um, that we can, if we're intentional about that, we can kind of train ourselves to use our intuition in a way that's consistent with the client's experience and checking that out. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is I'm not going to assume what that means for the client, right? I'm not going to say, oh, my intuition says that you are experiencing this relationship in a certain way. I'm going to check with the client and say, what happened for you right there? Yeah. yeah, and not assume the cause of that. Mm -hmm. But those physical, biological responses are just built into every human being. Yeah. That when we're in distress, something happens in our body. And so we can tune into that. Yeah. Yeah. We had um, uh, Dana. Dana. Can I remember her name? I can remember her face. Her face. Mm -hmm. um, on the podcast about two or three months ago. She, she's, a, she's the therapist who's taken polyvagal into practice. Oh, okay. Uh, so she's, she was really interesting to talk to as well. Yeah. No, right. um, she talked about all those different sort of innate safety cues, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which you do really well. I mean, you have a melodic voice. <laughs> so that really helps. <laughs> That's what people tell me all the time. Yeah. The prosody. I learned that prosody. in the EFT trauma training. Prosody. Yes. The yeah. intonations of the voice up and down. Yeah, that's something yeah. he was saying that I'm sure she talked about too, but that if when our um, limbic system is in fight or flight mode, that we literally cannot hear high-pitched sounds and we can't hear the endings on words because our brain is trained to hear predator sounds, which are low growling, yes. And so we can hear those lower intonations. And so when we're working with couples, they literally can't hear what each other is saying. Like their middle ear contracts so that they can't hear it. Right. And so it's not just that they're being jerks to each other <laughs> and, and misinterpreting what they're, like they literally can't hear it. And so unless we slow it down and make it slow and low, and melodic they won't be able to hear what the yeah. person they won't be able to hear what we're saying yeah. yeah 
thought that was super interesting. Yeah, no, his stuff is fascinating. Yeah. Um, so what kind of intercultural work are you doing now? I know that you're wanting to do a lot and you're beginning to do a lot with yes. like the Hispanic, the Spanish speaking cultures in this area. Yes. Yeah. So I have a handful of Spanish speaking clients right now because of my time in Venezuela, I speak Spanish. And just when I got and here, Portuguese? I have Portuguese from Brazil. Yes. Yes. I speak Portuguese. There too. you go. <laughs> Benefits I, of being I, a missionary kid, the, I guess. That was, that was a look at me suddenly becoming self self-conscious. Like <laughs> two master's degrees two certifications, three the language. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm actually not certified yet. So, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. EFT yes. or EMD. Yeah. <laughs> working on it, working on it. Um, but yeah, so I, so when I moved to the area, I started just meeting with different nonprofits in the area and saying, Hey, you know, this is who I am, you know, like, would you have a place for me? And could I be helpful to you in some way and just trying to network and see what was going on in the area. And I realized that there was very, very little available for Spanish speakers, Spanish speaking adults in the area. Kids, there's quite a lot through um, Medicaid, um, but for adults, especially adults who are, are, are undocumented, there are very few resources available to them because they don't have access to access to health insurance um, and even those who do have access only to like Medicaid providers I mean the, for the low income I'm not saying that all Spanish speakers in the area are low income I'm saying for the low income Spanish speakers especially the undocumented just a huge scarcity of resources for them and so that was just really sad to me because in California where I'd come from there were the agency that I worked for, there were lots of resources available to them. They did not have to have insurance in order to receive services. And we had lots of grants and even government funded services for undocumented immigrants. And so, man, that just broke my heart. And so started feeling like, okay, I need to do something about this, but I'm new here. I don't know anybody. I don't have a team, like, what do I do? I don't know. And so it just kind of went on the back burner. And then about a year after I was at the Joshua Center, I um, started feeling like, oh, maybe I could do this here. And um, like God had really kind of put that on my heart and said, hey, this is the place to start. And so I talked to our director, um, Ryan Reyna, about it. And he talked to the board and they were like, yeah, do it. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> So it's been this journey of, okay, how do I do that? I've never, I've never started a program like that before. I don't know how to write grants. I don't know how to get funding, fundraising, like uh, how to start. I'm not starting a nonprofit from scratch, but it kind of feels like that sometimes. And so, and it could be that eventually, right? It could eventually be a separate thing. And so um, it's been, man, it's been a ride. Um, so where we're at right now is that we've gotten um, a small amount of, of funding to get us started. So it's enough to pay for scholarships for uh, Spanish speakers to come to counseling um, and for this year. And then part of it we'll use to write, uh, to hire a grant writer to write some grants for us and hopefully get some more funding. So I'm very excited about that. 
So our ultimate goal really is to be able to provide a good amount of um, low-cost counseling to Spanish speakers in the area who can't afford it otherwise and who don't have good insurance um, to pay for that. Yeah. And so I'm really excited about that. There's a long way to go still, but we're, we're getting started. Mm-hmm. And we actually, at the Joshua Center, we have um, three, you know, four Spanish-speaking counselors right now. Um, wow. Which, yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, I can see how it could grow in the future, and we're looking at hiring some more. And so, um, yeah, it's really exciting, exciting. Ultimately, I don't know if this will happen or not, but ultimately I would really love for there to be a funding source to where other counselors in the area who speak Spanish could apply for funding from us to provide scholarships to their clients. Because I know there are are quite a few, there are probably about 15 Spanish-speaking therapists in the area that I've identified. and they all experience the same problem that a lot of times clients come to them but then can't afford services. And, and so um, it's just a difficult spot. And so I'd love for them to have access to that too. Yeah. We'll see, we'll, we'll see if that happens. And so does, is this formally a program? Is it just under the Joshua Center? Does it have its own name? It's called the Joshua Center Espanol. So it's not its own organization, but it's kind of a program within the Joshua Center. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I think that's so, I would say daunting. <laughs> it does feel daunting. <laughs> it feels a little daunting. Yes, it does. <laughs> it does. So many it's... different levels. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah, I tend to be kind of the big dreamer. And then when it gets down to the practicalities, I'm like, uh, how do I do this? <laughs> So it's been this journey of, okay, what can I do right now? What's the next step? You know, because I start thinking about, okay, well, how are we going to get Spanish-speaking counselors in the future? Oh, we have to start, like, recruiting, like, people from high schools and colleges who speak Spanish and present this as an option to them for their careers, and which, yeah, that's all important. But I can't do all that right now. No. Like, I can't, and I can't start a nonprofit right now. And have all the funding of it. Like all I can do right now is gather a team of people who have a passion for this as well, who will support me in this journey and lend their resources and contacts and apply for a grant. That's what I can do right now. (laughs) So it's true. You gotta you gotta get very focused, right? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. You'll be distracted by everything else if you're not. Yep. Yeah, that's what I'm finding. This is you know, this has been really good too, though, like on a different level for me as in like my leadership development skills, right? Um, because I think that's something that, that we're always growing in as well. Like how do we multiply what we're doing and how do we lead others into the areas that we feel passionate about, that we're gifted in? How do we help develop others in that area too? How do we help reach the need that we're passionate about. That's so professionally and personally, that's always an area of growth as well. And so this, this process has been really good for me in that as well. I've had to confront, okay, what are my fears about stepping out in this? You know, what am I afraid that others will think about me if I do or if I don't, right? What am I, um, 
what it, what is what am I good at in this endeavor? And what do I still really suck at <laughs> in this process that I'm really bad at and need to grow in as a leader and as a developer and um, have had to take really a hard look at, at some of those places because there's kind of no escaping it when you're committed to, yeah, <laughs> when you're in leadership and when you're com committed to a cause and an effort, like you just got to work through it. You either have to give up or you have to work through it. That's so been really good for me. Mm. Lots of that, a lot of that imposter syndrome stuff. Comes yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which I think a lot of people struggle with, which oh, is also yeah. weird to look around and think everybody here is also. <laughs> everybody an here feels inadequate. <laughs> yes. Except for the one guy yes. over in the corner, but he's a jerk. No one likes him. Anyway. <laughs> He's just hiding from himself, actually. <laughs> yeah. But even, he's, even he doesn't know. He's just he just doesn't know he feels that way. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, look, you're someone who's had a broad uh, view of the field. You're on the ground mm -hmm. level, right? You're not like yeah. um, Stephen Porges, who's up in the clouds. <laughs> right, right. Um, from, from the ground. Hello? Yeah. From from the ground oh, level. Sorry, we got interrupted. Yeah. What do you see as being on the frontier of the field? What's the next? Mm, for me, or for sure. the field? Both, yeah. both. I don't know that I have an answer for the field in general. That's a big one. I'll think about it. Ketamine. But for me. <laughs> have you Have you heard about this? <laughs> no. Uh -uh. I'm that? not the person to talk about it. Uh, Ketamine was just approved as a as a drug treatment for depression. And oh. People were raving about it. It's a technically it's an off brand of ketamine, an uh, a derivative. Derivative. Um, oh. It's a tranquilizer and a psychedelic. Oh. That doctors are going to prescribe now in low Whoa. doses to help people who have treatment resistant depression. Okay. So. Okay. Interesting. We'll see what happens with that. We'll see. Always <laughs> <laughs> oh, exciting when we when we start giving drugs to people and see what happens. Yeah. I know. Exciting is a good word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man. Well, let's see. Next on the horizon for me, I think is developing my skills both in EFT and EMDR. So right now I'm getting supervision for both, getting supervision in EFT just to help me get better. I mean, I think we can always grow and um, get better at what we do. And, and in that process, kind of identifying our own blocks, our own shark music with our clients. And so so that with EFT and then EMDR as well. And I've um, recently discovered that there is a kind of EMDR called attachment-focused EMDR it's that integrates attachment with trauma work. Yeah, yeah and so I'm, uh, I'll be starting supervision with, uh, with one of the attachment-focused EMDR trainers soon. Wow. And so I'm excited about that, really excited about that. And so just continuing to integrate and get better and working with kind of those harder cases that I have that I tend to get stuck in. Um, 
next step and then just continue to work. in EMDR or no? no? No. No, I've had all the training, but I don't have the certification. So that's what I'm working on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, and then just the Joshua Center Espanol. Yeah. Just moving forward with that and keeping on that. Yeah. What's next? So, so it sounds like you're you're definitely on the more end of being super focused, like, yes. like really, you're not looking at, yes. I don't know, some new approach. Really, you're, you're truly trying to mm -hmm. get at what you already do. Yes, yes, and we are bringing plug. We are bringing a circle of security training to Northwest Arkansas in 2020 for therapists, teachers, nurses, social workers. Anybody who works with children can take the training and can lead these groups. Um, and there's continuing education available. Yes. So, yeah, you so that's one of my passions. That. Yeah, I will. Yeah, this is one, it's one of my passions too, to bring that to this area just because it's so incredibly helpful. Yeah. Um, How long is the training? It's a four-day training. Four-day training. Yeah. Okay. And so we don't have the dates yet, but I'll put it out there once we do. Please do. Yeah, yeah. So I'm excited about that. It's just, it's, man, it's just so helpful for the parents that go through it and changes their relationships with their kids that I'm super passionate about bringing it to this area, helping yeah. it grow. So, yeah, so that's also on my radar. It's very cool. Yeah. It's very, very cool. And, you know, this podcast is mostly for students. Mm -hmm. That's also a great way to handle some of the logistics of being a counselor right yes yeah as in if you teach classes those are not people you're necessarily bound to confidentiality with right yes right. yeah um and it's also a way to supplement income going mm -hmm. in going yep. forward because sometimes client income is fluctuates yep. yes right yeah. and it's a skill that you can offer churches or schools mm -hmm. or parenting groups or whatever yes yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. it's definitely yeah, it's in my opinion that's probably one of the things students also need to learn, begin to do is open to the possibility of teaching classes. Yeah, for sure. And too, like sometimes you just need a break from your regular client load, right? Like right. you need to mix it up a little bit and get some variety in what you do so that you don't get burnout. Right. It's a great way to prevent burnout is giving yourself some diversity in what you do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, what are you uh, reading now? What's what's the book on your nightstand? So I'm reading, it goes along very well with what we're talking about. I'm reading uh, Sue Johnson's new book, uh, Attachment Theory and Practice. And I'm reading the attachment-focused EMDR. Okay. Yeah. And they're both very good. Are they really? Sue, Sue, yes. Sue promoted the heck out of her new, her new book. It is so good. Is it? So I have been to my own externship and core skills, and I've also been through a whole other set of core skills with another trainer as a facilitator, and I've been through a third, a, a second externship, and then a third core skills, and I still am learning so much from the book. Wow. Like I'm like I'm shocked. I'm like, how in the world? Did I not know this? Like, you know, I've been through three, so much trainings. almost three complete EFT trainings, and I still didn't know this. Yeah. And it's still like rocking my world. So it's, I highly recommend it. It's so good. Yeah, it's, it's a struggle to get through the first two chapters. The first two chapters are really heavy and 
not real exciting. But after you get through, I mean, you could probably, if, if you've already had EFT training, you could probably skip the first chapter okay. and just go into the second chapter. Yeah. But yeah, so good. So good. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Anything for fun? Anything that's not those, those two? Let's see for fun. I mean, I have a bunch on my nightstand that I don't read. <laughs> <laughs> I have a ton of Spanish novels and Portuguese novels right now because yeah. I well the Spanish to help me with my clients and then Portuguese ones because I'm going to Brazil in April to help with an externship there and I'm like I haven't been in Brazil since I was 18 so I still speak Portuguese but I feel really rusty and so I like got these Portuguese novels to help me like retune my brain to Portuguese yeah but I'm actually haven't started reading them yet. Okay. I am reading, what's it called? I'm trying to, Living in Christ's Presence by Dallas Willard and um, John Ortberg. And that's been really good too. Again, a little heavy, but some really, really good nuggets that are just super encouraging about um, God's nature and how he relates to us and how we um, help people engage with his nature. Um, here now there you go yeah well look thank you is there anything else you want to leave us with before we finish up man i think just so if the primary audience is students just keep going man there are going to be days when it feels really really hard and where you feel completely incompetent and like you're not helping anybody and who am i to do this and um, just as this is hard and that that's normal that those days are going to come it doesn't mean that you're a bad therapist it just means that you need support that you need people around you who can encourage you and who understand how hard it is and then people that can help you grow like that willingness to say okay this is hard and this means that I I need to grow more right? I need some help here and that's okay and so to not be able to to be afraid to say, hey, I need some help here. I need to grow and being proactive and seeking that out so that you don't stay in that place of feeling like, I don't know what I'm doing. That's that chaos feeling, right? Mm -hmm. This is hard and chaotic versus this is just hard, but I know what I'm doing. Yeah. So There you go. Well, look, thank yeah. you for talking. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right.